everyone needs to learn this stuff, not only so you know how to lead, but also so you know how these guys mislead you. This is Simon Langster. I'm a speechwriter. You can literally just leave it at that, and people will go, Really? <laughs> He's been working with top politicians and CEOs for decades. Teaching them how to speak well. And his TED talk has garnered well over 4 million views. In London, right the way through to the 19th century, it was possible to get a free education in rhetoric, but not in mathematics. However, more interestingly, is the reason why he decided to divert his attention to TikTok. And I was like, this is such a great way for me to connect with a much bigger audience. And where he thinks traditional education is falling short. If there's one skill mm. school should give every kid, it should be the ability to speak well. So what would be one tip you would have for someone to drastically improve their public speaking abilities? Tell a story. Take people, transport back to a particular moment in time. But obviously, he wasn't always like this. She messaged me and said, I've just seen your book on BBC News. Rather. I used to get absolutely fucking terrified of speaking. And literally, I'd be shaking. And then I flipped that. So I sat down with Simon outside Westminster House to see what we could learn about effective rhetoric, how politicians use it to swindle us, and why he believes so much in educating millions through TikTok. And a lot of the, the leaders that I've worked with, they do this. Much more has remained the same than has changed over social media. And finally, the first and most important thing that every single person should do is... So if you're at a barbecue around your local area and someone asked you who are you what do you do how would you describe that it depends what mood i'm in and whether i've got a sense of humor or not i might, might say i'm a speechwriter to the stars <laughs> i might say i do something that would horrify you and i have to say previous jobs when you said what you did i work in telesales i'm a civil servant then people, the conversation tends to end at that point anyway. Mm. I find that when you say you're a speechwriter, you can literally just leave it at that. And people will go, really? <laughs> because there is quite a myth, mythical world about what the speechwriter does. And you see it in TV programs. Do you watch West Wing down under? That's my favorite TV show of all time. There are times when we're 50 states and there are times when we're one country and have national needs. And the way I know this is that Florida didn't fight Germany in World War II or establish civil rights. It is absolutely f***ing brilliant, isn't it? And I tell you, when I was working in Whitehall and writing speeches here, the West Wing was actually showing live. Because mm, you started early uh, late 90s, didn't you? So exactly. right in the... Yeah, so <laughs> the I, th I think Series 1 might have been like 99 or 2000, was it? Or thereabouts. But I remember, I think the beginning, the beginning of Series 2, mm. Channel 4, who were showing it here in the UK, they did a special screening of the first episode of series two just for real life speechwriters and wow. real life uh, chiefs of staff. And it was all done like, you know, behind wraps in the, in the cinema at, at Channel 4 and they, they gave champagne. They had the actor John Spencer who yep. played Leo McGarry. And we're gonna lose some of these battles. And we might even lose the White House but we're not going to be threatened by issues. He came and he gave wow. a little talk, introduced it, and it was the most amazing. And we all loved The West Wing, and this thing about how reality and fiction blur was quite extraordinary, because we all wished we were writing, you know, for Jed Bartlett, obviously. But then you'd find, like, as you were writing a speech for a junior minister here in the UK, you'd start slipping in Bartlettisms. And I remember literally doing this. I wrote speeches around about 2005. I was writing speeches for our education secretary here. And he was giving a speech about um, 
support for families, where the Conservatives, he was not Conservative, he was Labour, the Conservatives have been quite judgmental about a good family is man, woman, you know, 2.4 kids and all of this. And Labour took a more liberal approach on it. And we did a speech where literally I wrote it all from a Jed Bartlett speech. Do you remember the Jed Bartlett one where it's, it's all about the love? It's all about the love. All the, and we, we did a whole speech around wow. that. Yeah. So they definitely included some uh, uh, Bartlett quotes in my head boy speech at the end of high school. I'm like, it's so great. I've got to include some stuff in there. You were head boy? Yep. Wow. Yeah, so were you a goody two-shoes, or was it just because you're tall? <laughs> <laughs> so I was the bad kid at school. Uh, I was never going to be head boy. Now you're the one who organises the presentation for people to make them look good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe it was all of those years of trying to pretend, it wasn't me, sir. Yeah, gave me, gave me the skills you need to work for politicians. You who get both sides of it. So you're a scriptwriter, but that seems very different from in being involved in social media content creation and being a TikToker per se. So yeah. why is it that you decided to create content for it all of a sudden? Everything is about human connection. Everything everything is about communication and connection. That's what we all want. That's what drives us like all day. And it doesn't matter how you do it, whether you're writing letters to people, you're writing emails to people, you're singing songs to people, you're making speeches to people. You're doing little TikToks, doing it on you. I mean, really, you know, whether you're giving a speech to people in person or you're doing it on your phone, it makes no difference. It's a number of the same processes that are still at play. And I just, I find TikTok absolutely fascinating. I really do find it fascinating, just as someone who spent their whole career working in communications. This is communications like taken to a level that I just think is so brilliant where literally you feel like you're having intimate relationships with people that you've never even met and maybe never even will meet. It was my daughter who got me into it, my eldest daughter. When she was 12 and we were in lockdown and she was begging me to let her have a TikTok account and I did all of my research into it and it was like, oh, I don't want to let you have a TikTok account. I really don't. Um, in the end, I gave her one. She then showed me around it. And I was like, this is such a great way for me to connect with a much bigger audience. Like, because what I do at the moment, basically I work with CEOs of some really, really big companies. And I work with corporate execs, teaching them rhetoric. I work with, you know, politicians, teaching them how to speak well. My sense of mission, if you like, is that, and my strong conviction is that everyone should learn this stuff. Everyone should be equipped in the art of rhetoric, the art of oratory. Public speaking should be a very basic skill. It should be, if there's one skill mm. school should give every kid, it should be the ability to speak well. Yeah, schools, like, I don't know, in Australia, you might be different, but here in the UK, when you go to school, you're taught to shut up and sit down. That's what you are taught, you know? And it should be, this is how you stand up and speak out. And so this is always, you know, a lot of, a lot of the people that I work with now, who are adults, I have to help them overcome childhood traumas, you know, that they were given from teachers who made them read out poems, made them feel so uncomfortable, so awkward, made them feel that public speaking was so unnatural. And it's not, it's the most natural thing that you can um, possibly do. So I use TikTok as a way of really getting my message out. So I view myself, and I'm, I'm speaking very tongue in cheek now, I just want to be clear, <laughs> you know, but I view myself as a bit of a Robin Hood that, you know, I do, I have a lot of very lucrative work that I do. My TikTok stuff, I don't, I don't do it for money, you know, and it, it, very much I consider it, this is my way to get across 
to vast numbers of, of younger people, these are some simple little tricks that you know. We're speaking obviously in London, where you know our Prime Minister is, is Boris Johnson at the moment, you know, um, and he's, he went to Eton, where they teach rhetoric and have always taught rhetoric. Now, I forget the exact number, I think it's 21 of our last, last 55 Prime Ministers. It's almost half our <laughs> last Prime Ministers. It's shocking, when's yeah. this one school, you know, and they learn rhetoric there. They spent like 20 million quid building a debating chamber there so that, so that their kids remain ahead. <laughs> and my thing is like, I th everyone needs to learn this stuff, not only so you know how to lead, but also you, so you know how these guys mislead you. Yeah. So you, you can detect the rhetoric, but also you can use the rhetoric um, yourself. That would be Boris Johnson going to prison <laughs> now. There we go. <laughs> well, one interesting thing I noticed with his resignation speech was the fact that he never actually mentioned resignation. It was just a change in the leadership. Yeah. And that within his whole speech, he just uses an opportunity to list down his supposed achievements and that he was really proud to lead the country and all this amazing things. So what do you think the thought process was behind that to ensure that he wasn't perceived as guilty per se he's a master of rhetoric he's an absolute master of rhetoric i think people have well, constantly throughout his career made the mistake of underestimating the power of of boris johnson but he is an absolute master and he never concedes anything at all that he doesn't have to you know and you can see that he does this in politics but clearly he does it in his personal life as well that this is a guy who's been up to mischief successive wives and mistresses all over the place and babies all over the place and stuff like that you kind of get this sense when you're watching him do a speech or you're watching him at prime minister's questions i think you know the nation watches him it's just answer the bloody question you know and of course he doesn't he doesn't do that. And the thing that is, is most frustrating is the way that for much of the last three years, actually, the journalists have failed to pin him down. Mm. You know, they've not asked the right questions. They've not challenged him on the right points. You know, with the, with really real um, proper life and death consequences uh, as well, like over here, he wasn't really properly challenged during the coronavirus crisis, which is why, you know, over here, our death toll is, what is it, five times per capita, what it is in a country like Denmark, where mm. Mette Frederiksen was behaving in a moral manner and protecting her most vulnerable people, while Boris Johnson was very literally saying, it's business as usual. Well, in his when, farewell speech, he was saying he's proud to have the quickest opening, but opening yeah. isn't perceived necessarily as a good thing if it yeah. then results in the casualties. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of people have seen, a lot of people here in the UK now, mental health problems, you know, it's like in Australia, but mental health problems have, you know, oh, yeah. skyrocketed. And there's all sorts of factors behind that. But I think some of the emotional appeals that uh, Boris was making during the corona crisis, like, you know, you're, you, you should feel guilty or ashamed if you're not going back to work now, if you're not sending mm. your kids back to school. When people are, are right, rightfully feeling fearful about what it is that that's out there and it's interesting seeing those comparisons between australia and the uk but what i've noticed is well which the people i'm staying with they made a good point that uh australia has seemed to get away with a lot more absurd dangerous rhetoric than even boris johnson has boris johnson may seem really outlandish to uh, some people here but he's pretty modest if you compare him to our previous prime minister who just got yeah. demolished in the last election 
in that the deputy was like claiming climate change was God's will and that we should let God have his way or trying to push through stuff that would allow schools to discriminate against LGBTQ plus people or completely discrediting climate protesters and yeah. things like that. But I think it was a, sh a show that people can start noticing it after a period of time. Then they put up with it for a while, but eventually they'll realize, okay, this is wrong and then start to shift. It was like, okay, we're not the US. That's yeah. safe to say that during COVID, we were united in this election. People realize, okay, that's a horrible group of people. Let's bring in the new shift that hopefully better represents us and doesn't try and trick us with rhetoric that is just completely false or yeah. ends up driving us into the ground. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is really, it's about having an, an educated population that's able to recognize when, when they're being mm. misled and they're, they're being manipulated and they're able to make more accurate judgments about people's character because I think you know mm. um, Boris Johnson obviously speaks with this authority that comes with um, you know his class and his upbringing that to, to us in the UK his voice is that that's what prime ministers sound like so he just opens his mouth and instantly he has this mm. or authority you know in a way that um, more working class MPs, of which there are a few, not many, but there are a few. When they open their mouth and people are kind of, eh, I don't associate you, I can't quite mm, see you. That's true. What do they associate with being a presidential per se? Where ours, he really highlighted the fact that the, the new one who just came in, that he came from housing commission with a, being raised with a single mother and things yeah. like that. It was actually the exact opposite where like, oh no, you don't want the posh North Shore or overprivileged guy because he's done these horrible things. Let's try yeah. and let, go back to that working class. Well, indeed, um, that's where, and you know, that's the pendulum of politics, isn't it? That the, the next leader is always defined in opposition to the uh, previous leader. So I'm sure that the next leader of the Conservative Party will be very, very different mm. to, to Boris Johnson. And, and, you know, it's likely A, to be someone who places a premium on integrity and honesty, um, I would think. And maybe, I, I think that's that's a given. Yeah. But I think beyond that as well, it would be sensible for the Conservative Party to move to someone who's also a different gender mm. um, and a different class and maybe even a different ethnicity as well. I think there's a lot of people have had enough of that mm. kind of person in, in Downing Street. That makes right sense. Now. You put up a post recently where it was a BBC reporter had a copy of your book on yeah. the shelf. For one, how happy were you to see that? And were you actually surprised that people in that position were reading your book. Um, it, well, that was great because it, it was that actually um, um, Susie, who's written this brilliant book, uh, Mortal Monarchs, which is coming out soon, who spotted it, who's another TikToker. Oh. She messaged me and said, I've just seen your book on BBC News. And she sent me the screen grab of it. And I, I was um, I was absolutely um, I was absolutely thrilled. So, it's you know, it sticks out um, on the shelf. But it's great. I mean, the, the book came out like uh, four weeks ago, five weeks ago, or something like that. And it's, you know, you spend years writing a book. And then when you actually start seeing people reading it and they're holding it in their hands, it's really quite an emotional thing, actually. And you start, you know, literally, I remember the book went out on it was published on Thursday. And then on the Saturday morning, I had the first email saying, oh my God, I've just finished your book. Wow. Um, and then, and the emails and messages on through all various channels have been coming in thick and fast ever since. And it's wonderful, you know, because sometimes, you know, you, you can write a book and get a message saying, I've bought your book. 
I've bought your book, mm. and then you never hear from them again. <laughs> and that can be a bit depressing, do you know what I mean? But when a lot of the messages have just been like, wow, mm. read it, you know, people taking it on holiday and getting to the end of it. And I deliberately wrote it um, in, in a style, very story-based, witty, you know, lots of gags running through, which I regard as being like kind of energy fuel just to keep people going when they're reading the book. Because it takes a lot through. to actually, after reading, then go write an email of thanks or of appreciation. Yeah. That's a, a barrier there that means they actually got genuinely something uh, yeah. from it. It wasn't just like, eh, it was all right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you do get, um, you know, people as well that are like, they're, they're, they're writing, say you've got a spelling mistake on page 72. And, and <laughs> the, the, those people you, you're kind of grateful to, mm. but you hate them as well. <laughs> At least if they do it on social media, it's extra engagement, right? Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah. yeah maybe. Caption yeah. wrong. It's not like, necessarily, yeah. not necessarily the best thing. Because no. the process you go, through, I mean, it's extraordinary. It's the process that you go through when you're publishing a book. You have proofreaders, you have copy editors. You know, every obviously you've got the commissioning editor, the publisher. You have um, agent. Or there's so many people go through the manuscripts on the way, and yet still mistakes slip through. And it's like there were eighty-six thousand words in there. You know, it's gonna be something. Yeah, 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 yeah. And as well, a lot of the time, either when you're producing content or a book, even more so, you don't actually see the effect that it has on people just off the bat. Maybe you see some extra sales, maybe you see a higher view count, but you don't really appreciate the person behind it because you don't see that. But when you do receive those thank you messages or people being like, hey, I've got some further questions I'd love to ask you, I think that in a way, is what kind of pushes you through the years yeah. of having to write the book or the effort of having to produce content every day or yeah. whatever that may be. Like there actually are people behind here and yeah. may not see them, but there are people taking genuine value from this. And that's yep. why I'm crazy. Literally yesterday evening, I had um, a message on Twitter from someone who's head of sustainability at a really big company. And he said, I've only read chapter one of your book and it gave me an idea for the speech that I delivered wow. today, Stand Innovation. And he sent me a picture <laughs> taken from the back of the room and it's Stand Innovation. But this, this is the thing that a lot of the things that I have um, in the book, people, if you talk about rhetoric, the art of oratory, people imagine it's like really complicated. Like you need to understand Aristotle, Quintilian, Cicero, all of that. You don't, it's really quick hacks in there, really quick tricks that anyone can instantly put into practice that make a profound difference then to the way that you come along. And that's my whole thing that it's, you know, quick hacks, revelatory facts that you can instantly put into practice and make a big difference. So what would be one tip you would have for someone to drastically improve their public speaking abilities pretty much on the spot? Tell a story. Take people, transport back to a particular moment in time. That's that's the thing that turns someone from a one out of 10 to a nine out of 10, that you, do, you can do that. There's heaps of others though. I mean, literally I could give you- The whole book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could give you 86,000 words of that, yeah. Is it also because it creates, that's what creates the emotional connection? Yeah. Because that's what you always drive for with creating content, with telling stories in a way is how do you emotionally capture someone? Because if it's intellectually, they'll probably forget down the line. It's like, oh, it's a yeah. cool stat. But if you grab their heart, that's what will make them remember long term. Yeah, I mean, that's one way of looking at it. I mean, the emotional connection is important, but I'd actually go a bit deeper than that, that it's making an instinctive connection as well. And it's, it's saying, I'm part of the same tribe that you are part of. Mm. Like the way I think of it is you've got your instinctive brain, you've got your emotional brain, you've got your logical brain. The three like that. Logical brain is, is least important. When we're looking at people, the first thing that we're asking ourselves is 
Do I trust you? Am I safe with you? Are you on my side? That's an instinctive brain. Then you have the emotional brain, which is like, are we connecting? You know, is there an emotional connection between us? And then you've got the last bit, the logical brain. No one gives, gives a shit about that. Doesn't really matter, optional, extra. And when you tell a story with someone, what you're saying is we're, we're similar. Mm. If I start telling you a story about when I was young, and um, I remember one day when I got back from school, opened the front door, walked in there, and my mum was, was sat on the chair, and she had her head in her hands, and she was crying. Absolute tears. And I asked her, I said, Mum, what's wrong? And she said five words to me that I will never forget as long as I live, you know. That makes you really want to know what those five yeah, words are. But also as well, now, like, you know, we grew up literally on opposite sides of the planet, mm. yeah? But I assume you have a mum and you would have opened the front door to go home when you were a child as well, so, you know. You can find some way to adapt yeah. the story to relate to your own. So that's the thing, we're now on the same side mm. because we're relating, because I'm describing an experience to you which is utterly relatable. And in this age of binary, you know, politics, debate, polarised, Asian, all of that, being able to cross those artificial barriers which are there all over the place because of gender, race, whatever, you know, it's actually, no, we're all human beings. Mm. We are all human beings. And that's the tribe that we're all part of. And when we tell stories, that's the way we connect. I, I can, you know, watch Michelle Obama, Oprah Winfrey, Meghan Markle, any of these people. The, these people grew up in a different continent to me. They were different gender to me. They were different ethnicity to me. Yet when I'm hearing their stories, I'm feeling like I'm them for as long as I'm hearing their stories and I'm relating to them. So the story is how you bring people together. So it speaks to instincts and emotions. And when you've got instincts and emotions behind you, the logic just mm. follows. It's like the elephant and the rider is the um, metaphor. I definitely agree with that. An extension you were just saying with those people, I think that's why uh, a lot of them have jumped onto social media because some more successfully than others, but it allows them to tell their story beyond just being in a Hollywood movie or being as a presenter on TV. It allows them to be much more authentic, who they are, tell their yeah. own story, their own thoughts, their own feelings, in a way that they're not able to do in their traditional mediums, which then can build a stronger connection with their audience. Yeah. Where it might be like, oh, I actually feel like I know who Will Smith is through his like fitness journey, or I feel like I know who Ryan Reynolds is through his YouTube videos or TikToks or whatever that yeah. may be, which they weren't able to do in their previous mediums as having to play other characters. Yeah. Um, Absolutely, and this is uh, one, one of the things that I write about in, in the book actually. When we're looking at TikTok, someone's got their camera like that. They're speaking to us as proximity that we would normally only share with the, with our lovers, literally with our lovers. And you're you wouldn't doing go that, that close breakfast to breakfast on the bathroom on the bus. Yeah. <laughs> like, once again, you don't do that with many people. Absolutely, and you've got in a bed. really, yeah, you've got an unnaturally you know, if I, if I was to stare into your eyes now for about 30, 40 seconds, you'd start getting a bit freaked out and thinking, is this guy coming on to me now? <laughs> Whereas on TikTok, mm. that, that's completely natural. That is completely natural to do that. And you may still break like you would in a normal conversation where you're not dead staring, but you might yeah. go off and on. But it's that same principle of I'm talking to you, yeah. not I'm talking to a, a studio crowd. Yeah. And so I bring in the research on stuff like this as well. And when we do look in someone's eyes, I forget the period of time it's for, 
but you know all of the all of the these connective hormones start being released into our bloodstream which make us fall in love you know it's like the rule of attraction so you, you know you're, you're having a real close relationship with people um, on TikTok. Instantly, one of the researchers that did one of this, these studies, like get where li literally he got these couples that like to just stare into each other's eyes for a couple of minutes, and then you release all of the attraction hormones and, um, and stuff, and then you saw what happened. And on his study, two of the people in the study ended up getting married later. So it'd been his his hypothesis was proved a little bit. Um, too far. <laughs> yeah, a little bit too, but I, you know, I don't know if they're still together. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. It's like, so if you've got someone you're interested in, make sure to just do this experiment. Yeah. You know, to further guarantee your chances of getting married if you look in that long term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I just, uh, you know, this is the thing that so, I just find TikTok such a fascinating medium for testing mm. all of this stuff about how it is that humans really connect with one another because there have been heaps of studies there's a guy at Princeton Alexander Todorov has been studying trust how it is that we decide whether we trust people and he shows like we decide in the tenth of a second whether or not we trust someone or not based largely on you know their face um, and all of this and of course on TikTok when you're there and you're, you're swiping through like that it's real tenth of a second mm. stuff a video comes on and you don't rationally analyze is this worthy of my attention or not but you, and that's just... how fast you swipe. Like I'm like, I'm not even, I don't even know what this video is, but I just know about the... Could you try again? <gasps> Series. Always listening. <laughs> Always listening. Like, just how fast you swipe. It's like, I don't even see what they're talking about, what they're doing. I can just tell by the vibe of the video. I'm like, no, not for me. Yeah. It's like, as you're saying, it really is that. Yeah. Saying, I think as well, the barrier to entry is so low on TikTok, where you're yeah. able to just pick it up and record. You don't need this whole process of producers and then writing scripts and then filming it then editing it then distributing it's, it's right there and you're done which yeah. makes it even more natural even more personal and easier to achieve than even youtube per se yeah 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 absolutely what amazes me and i'm sure you know a lot more about uh, this than i do is how sometimes the people that spend the most money can achieve the worst oh yeah results and and those who are literally just like, you know, I'm just gonna um, video myself chopping up a pineapple, you know, and and they can get like- I saw one, a LinkedIn post this morning of a guy saying his most views videos recently were chopping a pineapple. Yeah. <laughs> Literally this morning. Oh really? Oh, wow. Um, he's just another social media guy, so he was posting about that. He's like, yeah, I got 50K views, just me chopping a pineapple. I literally, <laughs> have, I haven't, hadn't, that's bizarre. Um, that's absolutely bizarre. Because I've not been on TikTok all day, so I had no idea that you'd posted that. But that is... No, it was, I, I saw his LinkedIn post of him talking about him posting a video. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's strange. completely changes how we distribute. You even see traditional BBC presenters now on TikTok. Yes. Um, either clipping their news reports or just them behind the scenes doing their thing. Or one yeah. this morning of a guy trying to interview Larry the Cat being like, your silence is suspicious. Were you behind the party gates? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And which then creates more of Larry a personal Larry Kratz in Boris's shoes. I think that, that's what it was. That was the final, you know, come on, your time's up here. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, it's not gonna be a fun walk home. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. That's kind of the point. And we're, we're talking about the, how, phrasing it in terms of that personal connection and things, but in uni, we're talking about how important it is to phrase things in certain ways that global warming was changed to climate change to better describe its effects on the world which now uh news agencies like the guardian are changing and rephrasing to climate crisis to better yeah. reflect its urgency and you mentioned in your ted talk being uh our house is on fire how greta thunberg phrases it 
So why do you think her phrasing, her use of rhetoric has connected with much more of the younger generation than by extension how important it is to phrase things in certain ways? So a really good and really important point. So um, this is the use of metaphor fundamentally. Now, when you take something abstract, an abstract concept like climate change, how do you communicate this in a way that connects with people? You have to use metaphor fundamentally. People don't get the science, so you've got to explain it in a way that people can connect with. Now, there was a study done by a guy called Stephen Flusberg um, at Harvard, I think in 2017, where he checked race metaphors to talk about climate change versus war metaphors to talk about climate change. And what he found was that using war metaphors made people more likely to accept that there was um, an urgent need to tackle climate change and also led to people being more willing to express um, a commitment to change their behaviour as a result of climate change, like keep your aircon down. Because you think race would be a sense of urgency. Yeah, but it's uh, you know it's like competition. It's fun, mm. isn't it? Where whereas war is like that's true. Like it's that. affecting but us then, now. It's not down the road. I think the danger with the so that that was the study that he did, but then you have Greta Thunberg comes out and says our house is on fire, mm. five words, and that for me is got to be much better than war metaphor because you're taking this thing. It's more it's war but personal. Yeah, and you're turning it into a domestic thing. And it also invokes the idea of like the world as a family, you know, because the house and we're all together. And of course, if our house is on fire, you can't sit around and wait for politicians to act. You've got to act yourself and you've got to act now. So it, it, it creates a frame in which you're much more likely to agree. And I'd be interested if the, this um, Harvard guy went back and like checked the house is on fire metaphor, because I mean, you know, it's, you can't prove cause and effect. But you're right, after Greta said that, Greta said that, and I think August 2018 was when she started her school strike, Our House is on Fire. And then within months, mm. parliaments around the world started agreeing there was a climate emergency. And I have the stat in the book that I think, um, you know, they, they do checks on co-located words within press text. Ooh. And, and people yeah. stopped talking about climate change and started talking about the climate emergency. And the use of the term climate emergency increased by an astronomical extent. It was like 87 fold wow. or something like that after Greta. It wasn't all because of Greta. And like I say, you can't prove cause and effect. She but was the she, face of it. Yeah. And she, well, yeah. I mean, and changed the way we perceived it. Because this is what we do with metaphor. You change perception. You're speaking in a, about something as something which it's not but by so doing you're creating a, a backdrop which really shapes the way that people then feel about it and i think as well from the young person perspective it was like finally there was for one someone representing your urgency which there hadn't been before in typical discussions and then also being your age meant it felt like it was one of your crowd versus maybe you have like a 65 year old academic who is yeah which is like great they're talking about the right things but it doesn't reflect that same passion and emotion yeah. that she was doing. Or David Attenborough, yeah. uh, who's been the face of climate change. But him doing an artistic documentary, yeah. it's like it's great and all, but it doesn't spark a need to change. It's just yeah. like, oh, I'm kind of sad for a week. Yeah. <laughs> Get back to your life. Well, I think you need the combination, don't you? Different people demand different things. And the, the combination of, of like, you know, the science and the more stylistic, mm. you know, uh, communication of, of um, 
our house is on fire, when you have those two things going together, then I think... And then with the population protesting as well, it's not just, oh, it's Leonardo's documentary with Nat Geo. It then actually evolves in people moving, then governments realizing, oh, my constituents that are about to come into the next elections and go, yeah. who are going to vote for me, I probably need to listen to what they're saying and what yeah. their needs are and wants are. Yeah. Um, which then hopefully then down the line causes more change. Yeah. It makes the people in power, or even organizations, yeah. realize that we're not going to invest in any companies anymore that are contributing to climate change because it doesn't look good on us. Our investors will hate us. Our board of directors will fire us. So yeah. it completely changes how things are run, invested into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Has social media changed what it is to have good rhetoric versus traditional TV or speeches? Is there a different way that you have to speak on these platforms? Or is largely a lot of the principles still the same throughout? If you can talk well on stage, you can probably talk well on screen. Yeah, I mean, it's simply the medium that's changed, but a lot of the, a lot of it is just about the way that humans connect and have always connected. And these, these are things that are like hardwired into our brains and have been hardwired over hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. So they're not gonna change simply because, you know, Steve Jobs invented the iPhone. It makes no difference. You know, you look in someone's eyes, this is what happened. You see someone who looks like you, someone tells you a moving story, you know, and you feel a kinship with them, then you, you're going to respond in that kind of way. So more has, much more has remained the same than has changed um, over social media. But I think the extraordinary thing that social media does is it multiplies the effect that you have because you can just reach so many people, so many more people, and unfiltered mm. by, um, you know, mass media. And there's no editors looking over your shoulder, script writers making sure you're getting every word right. Yeah, people, you. individuals, individuals can have a real impact. And so this thing about like teaching people to stand up and speak out actually becomes much more important because anyone can do this. We can all of us speak to the world right now. You can pick up your phone. You can be like Barack Obama. You can speak like Barack Obama. You give the message about climate change. Don't wait for your politicians to come out and do it. You can do it, we can all do it, you know. And so it's an, an amazing opportunity. And I mean, people, individuals now, have much more power to reach a vast audience than even politicians had when I started. You know, when I started speech writing 25 years ago, politicians give a speech in order for that speech to reach the people. You needed the press to report it. And you better be saying something they think is meaningful enough. Yeah, Otherwise indeed. Otherwise, it just will be they dead in the water. They won't report it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whereas now, and now politicians who aren't necessarily approved of by the, the media, they, they could get their message out around the back door through social media. Um, and many, indeed, on TikTok are doing that very, very well. Um, and so I think, uh, I think that's a good thing. I believe, I genuinely, believe in democracy and like participation you know the more people that are able to get their voice out there the the better i think that's a good thing i don't want debate to be just down to the leader of this party and that party get as many people sharing their views as possible sharing their stories you know it's like a town square in everyone's house you don't have to yeah. get the whole city of london to show up here for one person to speak you effectively get that same result yeah uh, wherever you are and in bite-sized chunks. A lot of people can be disinterested in politics or big speeches. It's like, ah, oh, it's an effort. I've got my life to deal with. Yeah. But if you're kind of getting bits and pieces, you're like, oh, I'm actually, I like the ideas that this person's talking about and the solutions that they have. Yeah. It's much better at getting your point across. Yeah, um, and, and they, they can connect, mm. like really, really 
You feel um, that you know who they are. Yeah, and you you get that instant feedback as well. So you can see, oh, that video was a bit crap. You know, you get the feedback within a couple of minutes. You can say, oh dear, you know, that one misfired a bit. And so for politicians, this is it's great, or wannabe politicians, you know, they can straight away see and they can then learn and adapt. Um, it's the, the, the best kind of feedback you can possibly get, which otherwise, you know, people just work up, they, they're blindly repeating the same error over and over again. Um, and, and this way they can hone and, you know, combine and try other things and see what the constituents are saying effectively the people in the comments being like actually i've got yeah. this suggestion or this idea or my thoughts and they're like oh that's what people are thinking yeah versus i don't know how else you get polling yeah <laughs> as long it? as they engage with it but still you know this is the thing some are like you know they'll go out there on social media and then people will start telling them what they think of them and they're like Ooh. you know so then i don't want to know actually how would you to sum it up how would you recommend that people either get better at traditional speech writing, presenting on stage, or even talking on camera, what would you recommend for people to get better at that? Because I know myself, people say, oh, you're just so good at this stuff, it just comes natural. And then knowing my past, I'm like, it's not natural. It was no. brutal work performing magic on stage where you know you're gonna fail at some point, but you have to look ultra confident anyway. It's yeah. being pushed, pushed on stage, be like, you have to get the school crowd to listen to you and talk about this thing, but. I haven't had time to look at the paper yet and just improvising and how would you recommend people put themselves into those situations or do practices that can get them better at it because it's not yeah uh, not necessarily an obvious go to the soccer field and train yeah well i think obviously the first and most important thing that every single person should do is buy my book <laughs> of course and, and read, read my book but the, the other thing as well as it which is called connect how to inspire influence energize anyone anywhere anytime but i think aside from that it really is it it is it's about practicing and it is about practicing i think not not just practicing like okay i'm going to record myself doing this and just see what that looks like um you know and i mean god the amount of outtakes i have for every video that i do you know i'm like, oh, i didn't like the way i said that keeping doing it over and over again but i think also mentally practicing and visualizing in, in your head before you do it this is what i want to be like um because i think a lot of people do get the stuffing knocked out of them when they're younger by you know either bad teachers or bad parents who, who you know give it low self-esteem and all of this and this is what my clients are trying to overcome often in their 40s or 50s and I think a lot of the time it's changing that narrative changing the narrative the real the movie reel that you have playing in your head about who you are about what you could do about what's um, possible and I, I think if you can if you can get that changed then you can make yourself really into whoever it is that you want to be um, and a lot of the you know the leaders that I've worked with, political leaders, they do this. They believe in positive visualization. They certainly don't indulge in negative mantras, like so many of us do. So many I people. I can't do it. I'm bad yeah. at it. I'll never be good. Yeah, yeah. You can either do it or you're not. Oh, you were born with the gift. They they buy into that narrative that it's something you're born with or or, or not. Absolutely not. I mean, you know, speaking from my personal experience, I used to get absolutely terrified of speaking oh. and I mean not just public speaking I mean just speaking at meetings being at a meeting like when I first started you know career working around here 
and you know, I'd go into meetings and everyone else was like Oxbridge educated and all of this, and I was like, I can't dare speak in 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 this room, and literally, I'd be shaking like before speaking, and you know, and and then I flipped that, you know. And it was actually working with a politician. I worked with a politician, great politician, who was an ex-postman, Labour guy, um, called Alan Johnson, who was brilliant. Everyone in Britain knows him and loves him. He's a very popular politician over here. Um, and I worked with him, and he was someone who, who, despite growing up in terrible poverty, was orphaned when he was 12 years old, was such a slick and smooth and confident former. And I was just like, man, if you can do it, I can do it, you know? And just shifting around that narrative, which is why I think it's so important that we get rid of, you know, this kind of idea that the only people that can govern us in this country are, are posh, rich Etonians. I wish we had a prime minister who came from a poor background um, in, in, in this country. You know, we need to be able to tell that story about social mobility. Because isn't there the uh, idea that the person who is best for leading isn't necessarily the one who's the best at getting a leadership position or a position of power. Yeah, well, I mean, we say over here, you know, if you, you know, if you want to be prime minister, you're probably unfit to be prime minister. <laughs>